0: Welcome to the three martini lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review.
1: Three martinis coming up.
0: So glad you've joined us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Congratulations. We've made it to the midpoint of a crazy political week, and there's still plenty of craziness still to go. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. We'll be talking State of the Union in a number of different ways, and we'll still be talking about the Iowa caucuses, which took up all of Tuesday's Three Martini Lunch. And if you haven't heard that one yet, I highly recommend you. Go back uh, to uh, to listen to that. Jim, let's get to the good martini, State of the Union last night. And in a lot of ways, particularly economically speaking, the State of the Union is very strong. Trump went through a list that took several minutes in just uh, jaw-dropping economic statistics last night. They're not even all in this clip, which goes a little more than a minute. But uh, once you hack out the applause, you really see how many different metrics look really, really good right now.
2: Since my election, we have created 7 million new jobs, 5 million more than government experts projected during the previous administration. The unemployment rate is the lowest in over half a century. The unemployment rate for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and Asian-Americans has reached the lowest levels in history. African-American youth unemployment has reached an all time low. African American poverty has declined to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level in almost 70 years and last year women filled 72% of all new jobs added. The veterans unemployment rate dropped to a record low. The unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached an all Time low. Under my administration, 7 million Americans have come off food stamps and 10 million people have been lifted off of welfare.
0: And we'll get to some good conservative policy ideas here in just a minute, which is is kind of a double-fisted good martini here, Jim. And uh, I guess the Democrats were grumbling. They didn't think that last one was necessarily an accurate statement. But, Jim, any one of those would be worth standing up and applauding. But when you pile them all up, you can certainly debate how much credit a president gets or uh, politicians in general get. But you got to admit that the strength of our economy, especially our employment situation right now, is about as strong as you can get
1: yeah um i I was thinking about this a great deal greg because you know for the state of the union really has turned into this like one hour and 15 minute exercise in what can i make the opposition party applaud how many good things can i lay out that if they don't applaud and they don't stand up and they don't seem happy and cheery and enthusiastic about it that they're going to look like a bunch of petty losers who want the country to be in a bad shape because i'm president I'm thinking back to you know it's appropriate considering how rush limbaugh was given the uh the medal last night and the recognition of the fact that he is now facing a pretty darn serious health threat, Rush Limbaugh got in a lot of trouble or, or created a great deal of controversy, you could say, at the beginning of the Obama presidency with a speech in which he declared, I hope he fails. And everybody jumped all over Rush Limbaugh and said, how dare you? How can you? This is our newly elected president. Aren't you being unpatriotic by expressing something like that? And every political partisan, every person who has a particular idea of how the country ought to work, how the country ought to operate, what policies work best, faces this issue of when the opposition party has control of the presidency. Do you hope for the president to fail? Well, no. At least you don't want the country to go through bad times. But the reason you want the president to not succeed in in passing his agenda and getting his appointments through and, and all these things that you think are, it's because you think they will in the long run hurt the country. Democrats believe that Trump's policies are bad for the the country. They said that back in 2016. They're going to say this again in 2020. I think what would be very nice is if there'd be at least some recognition that remember this this was the guy who was supposed to tank the stock market. This was the guy who was supposed to wreck the economy. We were supposed to be in a deep recession by now. There was the uh, lefty commentator writer who said that he had sold off all of his stocks after the election in 2016, because he knew that Trump was going to stank the markets. I can only, I, you know, listeners, I don't know how your personal, like, first of all, I hope you have a 401k or an IRA or something like that. It's always a very good idea. I hope you're saving for retirement. If you're not, you probably should start. You know, Maybe it's big, maybe it's small. You know, if you have one, you've had a really good bunch of years. I just got my statements for 2019. They were really good, right? Greg, I don't know about you, I might be able to retire someday. And for those of us <laughs> in Generation X expecting Social Security to not be there, this is a really big deal, right? So there's reason to feel really good about this. Now, maybe this is Trump. Maybe this is not Trump. Whatever you want to say, at minimum, Trump has not messed up what he inherited from Barack Obama. And I think it's safe to say that the conditions of the economy now are better than when he was sworn into office. Maybe not eons and, and, you know, by an enormous measure. But when all of those economic indicators are at the lowest point recorded, you have to say something is going very right. And you have to say, at minimum, the president's policies have not messed it up. And I say this as somebody who's not a fan of all the president's policies on trade. But you know what? They haven't wrecked the economy. This is the strongest argument Trump has. And you can tell Democrats, like the, the general response has been to insist, no, it's not true. The entire you know, response statement from the governor of Michigan was, no, the economy is a lot worse than the numbers indicate. It's bad. You just can't see it.
0: Your bank account's lying to you. Your 401k is lying to you. Your investments are lying to you. That's, that's on the economic front right now, one of the only arguments that they've got. So uh, when it came to policy, Jim, Trump talking about how this uh, newly created wealth is being used uh, to lift up folks who are in struggling situations. Uh, first of all, he talked about opportunity zones, something we haven't heard a lot about since the Jack Kemp era.
2: Jobs and investments are pouring into 9,000 previously neglected neighborhoods, thanks to Opportunity Zones, a plan spearheaded by Senator Tim Scott as part of our great Republican tax cuts. In other words, wealthy people and companies are pouring money into poor neighborhoods or areas that haven't seen investment in many decades, creating jobs, energy, and excitement.
0: those darn rich people. All right, uh, Jim, let's talk about the other thing that he focused on, and that was school choice. He told the story of young Janaya Davis in Philadelphia and all the efforts her mom has made to get her into a good school, and Trump using that example to explain how he wants that opportunity for everyone.
2: Building an inclusive society is making sure that every young American gets a great education and the opportunity to achieve the American dream. Yet for too long, countless American children have been trapped in failing government schools. To rescue these students, 18 states have created school choice in the form of opportunity scholarships. The programs are so popular that tens of thousands of students remain on a waiting list. One of those students is Janaya Davis, a fourth grader from Philadelphia. Janaya's mom, Stephanie, is a single parent She would do anything to give her daughter a better future. But last year, that future was put further out of reach when Pennsylvania's governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice to 50,000 children. But, Janai, I have some good news for you, because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an Opportunity Scholarship has become available. It's going to you, and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. Now I call on Congress to give 1 million American children the same opportunity Janaya has just received. Pass the Education, Freedom Scholarships, and Opportunities Act because no parent should be forced to send their child to a failing government school.
0: Jim, that's a powerful issue. We saw it was a big factor in Ron DeSantis winning the Florida governor's race. And uh, you looked at the Democrats when he made that push. uh, You would have thought that uh, they'd been offended in the worst way possible. They couldn't applaud because the teachers unions won't let them.
1: Yeah, we should point out, you know, from a conservative policy standpoint, last night's State of the Union address was really good. It is also worth noting that it's probably like the fourth straight State of the Union address or joint address to Congress because that's what they call it in a president's first year. That was really good. And usually within a day or two, the president of the United States comes out and goes off on some rant and, you know, gets, you know, oh, look at Mika Brzezinski's plastic surgery. You know, some sort of like, you know, this Trump, good Trump will not last very long. You know, this, this is when Trump sticks to the script. He tends to focus more on policy. He tends to focus much less on what people are saying about him on cable television, right? This is Trump at his best. And if he could just hold it together and be this guy for long stretches, I think his approval rating would be closer to 60%. Right now, 75% of Americans say they feel confident about the economy, right? A lot of that should be translating to support Trump. His job approval is still around the usual 50-50. This is, you know, like th- this is Trump at his best. And first of all, I think it says something that conservative policy ideas like school choice, right, like enterprise zones actually, you know, like when people pay attention to them, we do quite well. People like them. People see the success stories, Um I thought it was very interesting to see Kirsten Cinema to stand up and applaud during the enterprise zone segment of the speech. Um, I, I wish Trump could be like this all the time. This is him at his best. I've learned over the last few years to just enjoy it for that night and recognize that later today, he'll be, you know, twerking on the white house lawn or something like that. We'll just, you know, Bad Trump will come back and will be, you know, things will reset back to normal. But it's always nice for one night to see, you know, what Trump could be like if he just had a little bit more impulse control. But
0: getting out there and uh, getting it on the record and making people aware of conservative policy ideas that are making a difference all across the country is a huge part of winning as well. And uh, just as an aside, uh, obviously, great moments in the gallery. I'm sure the libs didn't love the. Uh, uh, in-the-moment presentation of the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. Conservatives, I'm sure, loved it. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, but the other folks that were honored, uh, the family that lost uh, the husband and father to the roadside bomb in Iraq and how Trump tied that into killing Suleimani, obviously the the reunifying of the uh, soldier who had been in Afghanistan was a very moving moment. And also Charles McGee, the Tuskegee Airman, who I've had the opportunity uh, to interview at the veterans work that I do through the American Veterans Center Uh, Not only is his military record amazing, over 400 combat missions over three wars, but uh, his uh, character and just his uh, peace and lack of bitterness over how he was treated as a member of the Tuskegee Airmen and discrimination over the years, uh, seeing him get honored was a great moment as well. And uh, I thought those were used to great effectiveness.
1: You know, Greg, I'm just going to observe that the man is 100 years old and he still looks like he could kick our butts. (laughs) You you know, Every president since Reagan has done this. I believe Reagan did this first with a guy who there'd been a plane crash in the Potomac and he had jumped off and rescued someone who was drowning. Uh, you know, Reagan did it. Bush did it. Clinton did it. Bush did it. The other Bush, uh, Obama did it. And almost every president does this well. Trump did this. I don't know if the White House speech writers, I don't know if it's the advanced, whoever is putting this together, the, the State of the Union presentation, does this really, really well. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and by the way, like for a president who has all kinds of personal controversies and, and says all kinds of, of controversial things, one of the ways you, you change the mood in the room and you change the mood of the viewers at home is you don't talk about yourself. You talk about someone else and you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat to appreciate so what extraordinary Americans can do. But what Trump did a very nice job is taking it and then tying it back to various proposals uh the young man who want the grand great grandson who wants to be an astronaut talking about u.s space force and putting a u.s man on mars a man and a woman on the moon by the way greg did you notice they didn't they didn't the democrats did not applaud that that's all right no applause for for a man on, the, on mars really no applause for a woman on the moon i i think we've now come to the point where if trump said puppies are terrific the Democrats would sit on their hands because they've just decided, well, I don't trust him on puppies. Sure, he says puppies are terrific, but I think I think he's actually eating the puppies. You know, It's just baffling. Um, it's absolutely fascinating to see just how polarized the country has com- become and how much the polarized the chamber has become. And maybe that's a good transition to our second martini.
0: Well, there, there were a couple moments last night that got a lot of people's attention that uh, were not specifically connected to the content of the speech. Uh, when the president came to the podium, he shook Vice President Pence's hand, gave him his copy of the speech, gave Nancy Pelosi her copy of the speech, uh, did not shake hands with Nancy Pelosi. It was hard to tell from the different camera angles if he saw the hand, but uh, she definitely extended it, and so I don't know if that uh, accelerated things. But then throughout the speech, uh, Nancy Pelosi was clearly not happy uh, that she had to be introducing the president. She didn't give the usual flourishes when she introduced him. It's usually, uh, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of introducing to you the president of the United States. Instead, it's just members of Congress, the president of the United States. But then at the very end, uh, she takes a few pages of the speech, rips them in half, then takes the other half of the speech and rips them in half. You could say she has to get to the gym so she could at least tear the whole thing at once. But uh, Jim, uh, in the end, she was uh, out in either statuary hall or the rotunda there, and she was asked why she did it.
1: Why did you rip the speech up,
0: Madam Speaker? It was the courteous thing to do considering the alternatives, Jim. So uh, it's been a bad week for Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Her impeachment uh, desire is going down in flames today in the Senate, and uh, she had to sit there while Trump gave the whole litany of uh, economic success and many other issues as well. Uh, And in the end, I guess that was her visual way, other than wearing white again, uh, that she decided to get back at the president. It was not going over well on C-SPAN when I was watching and listening last night. Uh, I don't know if that's because only Trump fans were watching the State of the Union last night. But uh, overall, that was not well received by the people reacting that I saw.
1: Yeah, it is worth noting. If At some point today, you're probably going to see the instant reaction polls. And you know, I remember seeing similar numbers during the uh, Obama presidency. If you don't like the president, you don't sit and watch his State of the Union generally. Uh, you basically look around and see if there's sports on or something else going on in the world. Uh, or you're you know going through Netflix or something like that. It, one, it'll be interesting to see how many people are still interested in seeing what the president has to say in the fourth year of his presidency. Um, I think it's safe to say that most people know exactly what they think of Trump at this point, and they may not be all that interested. So, in this sense, a, a what I thought was a pretty darn good uh, State of the Union speech may not be much of a, a you know, political game changer or have a, a you know, real lasting or significant effect. Um, that having, you know, and then as for Pelosi, I think this explains the contra- you know, like this really illuminates the contradictions we see in the Democratic Party. During the impeachment process, Nancy Pelosi said Donald Trump is a national security threat. Once you've said that, once you've said that the president is a danger to the country itself, I don't know how you go on and treat him normally, which includes, by the way, like working with him on U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement um, and all of these other aspects of him. You, You just, you know, acting normally, acting um uh, you know, the, the, the usual give and take between Congress and the president. Of course, it's going to be, you know, at a much higher tension during an ongoing impeachment trial. And oh, by the way, Clinton's State of the Union uh, came out right after the final vote on impeachment back in 1999. And I think that probably was the right choice. I don't know if delaying it until after the impeachment trial was an option. I think they should have explored it. My boss, Rich Lowry, had made the interesting observation. Mr. President, you are a menace who must be removed from office Immediately. And you must be forbidden from running for another term. But um, so does Tuesday night work for you for the State of the Union? <laughs> you know, there's this there's this contradiction here. And, you know, that all as I tried to write today's morning jolt, this has been going on for a while in the sense that, like, Democrats were saying that that, you know, Trump was acting like a monarch, that he was authoritarian, that he was stirring up hate in the country, that he was creating a menace to minorities and to women everywhere. And then they went on recess for six weeks. If you guys really believe the country is in crisis, act like the country's in crisis. It's it's very similar to the the way they speak about climate change, right? This idea of this is really, really super important, but at the same time, we're not going to change the way we go about our business and the way we operate and the way we interact with this president, Um, which makes people think, okay, this is just trying to stir up the grassroots. This is all just for political feed. It's been interesting to see people saying, ah, the, the Pelosi gambit worked. Everyone's talking about her tearing up the speech. No one's talking about what the speech said itself. I'd really love to see the cost benefit analysis on this because I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, the, of course, the Democratic progressive grassroots love it. Of course, everybody who um, opposes the president, you know, is, is you know, saying, yes, lay queen and, and all that stuff. You know, I, I went back to the, the percentage of the Americans who want to vote to remove 538 does a really nice job of putting together all the all the polls and keeping an average. And, you know, it's been at about 48 percent pretty consistently throughout this entire process. Greg, I had to go back and I checked. 48.2% of the American electorate voted for Hillary Clinton four years ago. The people who don't like uh, Trump have decided he should be impeached. The people who like Trump oppose removal. That's that's where things are. I, I, I think we've reached a point. I, it, it was kind of fascinating. My only observation of this last night was – there was a time when people thought John Boehner and Donald uh, and Barack Obama hated each other. I don't think they did. I mean, they, they opposed each other. They vehemently disagreed about the right direction for the country, the policies. But I don't think they actually hated each other. I think there was some sort of mutual respect or mutual appreciation of the other side's of the other man's duties and things like that. And I think that if you look at the contrast, Trump and Pelosi genuinely hate each other. They genuinely loathe each other and think that the other is genuinely harmful for the country. And um, I, I you know. It's very tough to see how much is going to be able to get done in this country with this kind of an attitude between these two leaders. Two quick
0: follow ups here, Jim, and uh, you and I are probably not well qualified to be frequent commenters on women's fashion. But I just want to point out that according to the Washington Post, wearing white is uh, projecting power again. Because remember, when Hillary Ward at her convention speech, she was projecting power. Tulsi Gabbard wore it in the debates, and she was a cult leader. But now that the Democratic <laughs> women in the House are wearing it, uh, they used it to demonstrate their righteous fury. So I just wanted to clarify that that's now cool again. And also, speaking of impeachment, we have just found out as we're recording here that Alabama Senator Doug Jones has decided that Roy Moore is probably not going to win the Republican primary. So he is, quote-unquote, reluctantly... Uh, voting to convict President Trump today. So, congratulations, Senator Sessions or Senator Tuberville.
1: I was about to say, you know, what a beautiful retirement announcement. <laughs> um, and we hope Doug Jones enjoys his retirement starting next year. Of you know, and look, this is not that surprising. I think it's safe to say that Doug Jones was was always going to be a bit of a long shot for reelection. Uh, Alabama is indeed a very conservative state, a very Republican-leaning state. He ran against Roy Moore, and Roy Moore is quite probably quite literally the only person who could lose that. But, you know, April 2019, Doug Jones gets there, and his comments are like, I'm, I went back and I checked this up. This is an interview with Mother Jones. Quote, I am by nature a lot more moderate and a lot more centrist, and I've got a lot of experiences under my belt to know that it's not always the loudest voices that get things done. I ran as someone who wanted to get things done, not somebody who wanted to shake things up. Well, here we are. And oh, by the way, I looked and he votes with Trump 36 percent of the time. Now, I think somebody said 538 does a nice job of calculating how frequently you would expect someone from that state in that position. And the number is like 86 (laughs) percent. So he's not voting with his constituents. He's not voting uh, the way most Alabamans want. And so it's pretty clear that his political career. So at this point, there's no further risk. He's going to lose and he might as well. Might as well go for it. Um, but I think it's I, I in fact, all, of the three, I thought the only one they really had a shot at is Manchin. mansion. I don't think we've heard from Kirsten Cinema. I don't think she votes against. Maybe she splits, I suppose, it's possible. But uh, I think you got pretty much a party line vote other than maybe Joe Manchin. The fact that Joe Manchin was issuing a censure resolution earlier this week to make says he's looking for a reason to vote no on removal. Um, but I guess we'll see later today, Greg. Let's move
0: on to our crazy martini, and it goes back, like I said, to yesterday's podcast. where We are talking about the Iowa caucuses, and now, Jim, we're, gosh, what are we, 36 hours past the time, at least, when we were supposed to know the results. We still don't know all the results, but now we're up to, depending on which count you look at, either 62 or 71 percent of the caucus results in, and I find this highly delicious. Bernie Sanders is winning the popular vote, but Pete Buttigieg is winning the delegate count. That's not a constitutional mandate. That's just the rules that the Iowa Democratic Party set up. So the guy who wins the most votes might not win the most delegates. And, Jim, as you point out in the morning jolt today, the Iowa Democratic Party uh, pointing out that they have no idea, or even if, we're going to get the rest of the results. So this story just keeps snowballing.
1: You know, it's been because everyone's like, you know, ooh, impeachment. You know, this has you know, consumed Washington. And my sense is that in a, you know, maybe a month from now, well, maybe by the end of the week, considering the, the news cycle we're in, I think Americans will move on from impeachment pretty quickly. It, it was not a decisive factor in the 20, 2000 presidential election. Now, obviously, more time had passed. But I just, I, you know, in this era of Trump and the speeded up news cycle and, and this, you know, like, you know, a month from now, I think we're going to be talking about coronavirus. A month from now, I think we'll be talking about a bunch of stuff. We'll be talking about the Democratic primary. I don't think we'll be talking about impeachment. And I think it's quite like the Iowa caucus not being able to tell us not just who won the night of the caucus not really being able to tell us who won the night after the caucus <laughs> the quote that jumped out at me that seemed really stunning is we don't know when the remaining it's, it's it was 71 percent we'll get 29 like nearly a third of the vote is still out there is, is is just kind of mind-boggling and you know look palm beach county is looking at these people and saying what's wrong with these folks <laughs> Um, I don't want to start a conspiracy theory. I suppose it could be just sheer flat out. We're helpless. We are utterly incompetent. We can't, you know, we keep poking ourselves in the eye with pencils because we don't know how they work. uh, Level stupidity. That having been said, Greg you and I are not math geniuses but if you gave us numbers from 1700 places we could probably add them up within a 24hour period I think so right it'd be a lot of, it'd be easier if you had a lot of you easier if you have big teams right it'd be easy you know and you probably want to verify all that information but again like they say there's no issue with the collection of the data right and the yes, all the precincts were open right we have all the big what is the holdup and if you had like one or two precincts where the paperwork got wet you know, like you, you can imagine scenarios where you have an issue at one one or two precincts or something like that this is why often like on a, you know the next morning after an election you look at the ap count and they've got you know 587 out of 589 precincts reporting or something like that but a third two days <laughs> later it's like, like there's a re- like particularly coming after the 2016 election the you know number of bernie sanders supporters who believe something you know something uh, uh that he was cheated out of the nomination right that it was rigged by the way, go back and check the vote totals for, for all the states. All the, Hillary Clinton won by several million votes, right? You know, Bernie Sanders gave a great campaign, completely blew away the expectations, was in it until the, you know, almost until the very end, but Hillary Clinton won. Now, we can argue about whether she won completely 100% fair and square or whether DNC had its thumb on the scale fine, but she genuinely won by a margin that was beyond the margin of fraud, shall we say. But in this one, Greg, it's not the the one third being out and we have no idea when we'll be able to tell you. That indicates to me something really significant went wrong beyond a routine technical snafu and the app failed or something like that. Something that really stinks is going on here. And I think this could end up being a story after New Hampshire, after Nevada and South Carolina, because this is foreshadowing a, a, you know, something I'm I'm thinking about writing. Greg, there are a lot of Republicans who were really frustrated by Trump winning the nomination in 2016. People were frustrated by the way the media covered him, the mainstream media, which seemed to think he'd be the easiest to beat for Hillary and and spotlighted him. Frustrated by the way Fox News turned into a cheerleader and certain personalities over there. Like, there's a lot to be frustrated about. But you know what? Donald Trump won that nomination fair and square. All the primaries worked. All the caucuses worked. If you're a Democrat, can you say that at this point? Do you have faith in the in the results that are coming out of Iowa? At this point, I don't think you do. And I think that's a huge story. Particularly for a party that's been spending the last three years beating the drums about ensuring the integrity of our elections and election security and all that.
0: Well, I don't know about the other states, but they're 0 for 1.
1: And uh, <laughs> yeah, right. It, I mean, in addition, yeah. in addition to
0: the fact that uh, they're not sure when they're going to get them, uh, they're somehow uh, able to conclude that they don't necessarily think that the remaining votes would somehow change the outcome. Well, if you know that, then go ahead and release them. But my suspicion here is that so many people in their own party couldn't understand the process they're not sure what to do with the results in some of these
1: places but that uh, feels very plausible and the other thing with the, the so on election night it looked like from from the coverage you were getting live on cnn and msnbc and everything else um that that biden was having a really really bad night and that biden was having a really good night and people said well wait a second it's mostly big cities and college towns where the cnn and msnbc and all these folks are covering live these smaller towns the rural areas they, they don't have camera crews out there that's probably better for biden those folks. So it's possible, if, if it's if it's a matter of distance, if it's a matter of location, and those remaining twenty nine percent of precincts are more rural areas, then conceivably this is going. We're going to see an improvement in Biden's numbers, but maybe not. But if it is, man, oh man, if it does come out, if they come out with eventually a week from now or maybe a couple of days, hell, maybe today. It'd be great to see. If it, you know, the sooner the stuff comes out, the better. If it comes out and it's a Biden surge, how many people are going to look at that and say, ah? The establishment rejiggered the vote totals to make sure Biden won or mm-hmm. that Biden did better. They, they're acting as if they want conspiracy theories to take root. And uh, good political instincts there on Biden's part to just be out there
0: saying, I don't think they should release the results at all. <laughs> we'll just move right on. <laughs> so well, I mean,
1: like there, there is a certain school of thought that would say like, like my attitude had been, all right, if you if you have to do it, you'll get we're used to having partial election results on an election night. And there's certain, we've had plenty of races where we don't find out till the next morning. It's really close to comes down to 1%. Yeah, we're used to that. A lot of us live through Florida 2000, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We know close races happen. When you release nothing the first night and then about two thirds the next day, You know, no one really knows. Is that remaining third, you know, the same as the rest? Is it significantly different? Nobody knows anything. It is the the Iowa caucuses should not be a black box, particularly for a party that spends so much time emphasizing we need to restore faith in our elections.
0: The story just gets more amazing by the day. I love the fact that the popular vote winner might not win after all their harping and carping about the uh, the electoral college, just the hypocrisy. Run amok, Jim. It's been a fun week. It's been an exhausting week, but it's been really interesting in a number of different ways. We'll see if your prediction of Trump twerking comes true this afternoon. Um, hopefully hopefully we don't actually get that imagery. But in the end, uh, we'll certainly have a full plate to talk about tomorrow. So we'll see you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review and be sure to join us again on Thursday for the three martini lunch.